Hello, everyone. My name is Luke Marshall, and you are listening to the Things Observed podcast. And I am here with our very special guest, Recluse, also known as Stephen Snyder, the host of the Farm podcast, the man who runs the Divisive blog, and the author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. He is also one of the authors of Strange Tales of the Parapolitical, Post-War Nazis, Mercenaries, and Other Secret History. In addition to buying his books, you can read some of his work by visiting visipview.blogspot.com. In the description of this episode, I will leave various links where you can find all of his thoroughly researched work, which I highly recommend that you all check out because I have learned so much from him, and I know that you all will learn a lot from him as well. But anyways, how are you doing today? Doing well, sir, and thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely, absolutely. I really look forward to getting into this all. So I guess I'll just start as uh, in the way of introducing you a little bit more. What got you first into researching the parapolitical, uh, what some people would label the realm of conspiracy and all the interesting stuff that you both blog about and podcast on on the far podcast uh well you know i was kind of brought up in a household that had a conspiratorial uh, bent via my dad uh he you know had definitely looked into uh a fair amount of i would say maybe john bircher type sure um you know remember the coming economic disorder was one of the favorite books when i was growing up um and you know, I can remember listening to William Cooper and that kind of thing with him back in the 90s, if I remember correctly, when we were uh, visiting Colorado, just doing a lot of stuff like that. But I didn't, you know, really become interested in more conspiracy-oriented tropes and certainly parapolitics. I mean, I didn't have any conception of what that was until later on. And I kind of feel like I always have had a... Uh, sort of unusual approach to parapolitics because unlike it seems most people came into this field at least during the early days um you know they were coming from very hard academic or journalistic backgrounds whereas i was actually driven more by high weirdness actually into this field uh so that brings up an interesting story uh this is around 2003 I think to maybe 2004 when I was uh, living at the dorms at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Uh, this is during the heyday of focus of the family and what have you. Uh, during this particular era, people would actually say prayers at the local McDonald's over at their uh, Big Macs. You know, it was that kind of uh, atmosphere. It was in this climate the first time I did psychedelic mushrooms. And it was to this day, probably the most intense trip that I've had, ironically, until the most recent one, which I did with uh, Keith Allen Dennis, my research partner, who's actually one of the main uh, individuals who was involved in the Wackle podcast series. In fact, Keith is actually right now writing a book that will be the definitive history of Wackle uh, when he finishes it. Uh, I know for a fact, because I've been there for a chunk of the way on it, but anyway... So yeah, there's this weird uh, magic mushrooms connection for those of us who have uh, been researching this stuff in recent years. Interesting little side note there, I guess, if anybody wants to chronicle this in the future. So anyway, 
I'm, um, you know, at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, I'm like 21, 22 years old, take mushrooms at the time, go into the cafeteria like around midnight uh, because they had it open at this time for snacks. They've got like this breakfast food and stuff like that. You know, it's a standard school cafeteria. It's very white. It's got, you know, like the different aisles and stuff in it where the food would be set on. And then in the back, you know, you've got like the grill or the, you know, German cook. I was... Hindsight, that's another one of these sort of odd things about this. The cook was some kind of German exchange student or something like that. Shaved head out yards. But anyway, I walk into this cafeteria, and first it looks like it's filled with like a smoke machine or something like that. Uh, it's like everywhere. And then from there, I start to realize that there are these large gray aliens walking amongst the students like six, seven feet tall, just kind of observing everything. They, you know, I assume that they were making notes. I mean, I didn't see anything like that, but it seemed like it was some kind of a lab experiment or something that they were part of, that they were uh, taking in. So this to this day is the most intense hallucination that you know, I've ever had. I mean, they looked as real to me as my thermos that I'm currently you know, sipping my coffee out of looks to me right now. It was insane. So you know, this whole thing, for obvious reasons, it stuck with me. And uh, a few years later, I mean, I'd always kind of wondered this, uh, you know, well, is it common to see aliens in an altered state of consciousness? I mean, has anybody else ever had this happen before? Uh, and then I started to formally look into that. And that was when I first uh, encountered Rick Strassman's experiments with DMT that he did in the 90s or see later read the book about it, The Spirit Molecule, uh, which was, again, quite a fascinating thing, and it confirmed for me that, yes, under the influence of psychedelics, other people had seen, uh, you know, what we would think of as extraterrestrials or uh, great aliens or something to that effect. Uh, but then from there, I started to wonder, was it just psychedelics? I mean, was there some kind of other possible altered state, because by this point in time, I had started to toy with the notion that UFO encounters in general represented uh, the experience of necessarily contact with some other entity or something like that. So this led me to the remote viewing experiments uh, that had been done at Stanford and then later uh, or excuse me, BS at SRI uh, under the auspices of the CIA, in which later uh, the military took up under Stargate and there's ton of other names, sunscreen, all this other good stuff. So anyway, I, I learned that the remote viewers had also had these kind of experiences with uh, radio aliens and altered states of consciousness. And there had also been some similarities as well with the Strassman stuff, the DMT experiments, in the sense that there had also um, been a disturbing amount of um, physical illnesses that had come out of these uh, two programs as well, especially related to cancer. Several of the uh, remote viewers had succeeded cancer, I think most notably Pat Price, and um, also with Strassman's DMT experiments, several of the uh, participants tracked the cancer. In fact, I think including Strassman's then wife uh, while they were doing it. And that was, you know, all of this was just really eye-opening to me. And in looking at the remote viewing experiments, that was the first time I had really kind of formally encountered MKUltra 
think it was off from reading the other remote viewers book by Jim Shinobu or something like that, where they uh, get into that a bit. And that was, you know, had really opened up an entirely new world for me. And that uh, gave me a particular prism to view a lot of this stuff through as well, because I usually have delved into more scholarly research, trying to basically suss out some of these more fantastical claims and whatnot. And certainly when I was sort of confronted with this mystery, I mean, you have this, you know, this national security agency that had invested millions of dollars researching LSD. And then later a lot of these other, you know, strange arcane subjects. One hand, I was captivated by it, and the other, I just wanted to see, you know, how legitimate this kind of stuff was and why they would be doing this. Because, I mean, it, it handed it an entirely different, I mean, not just the shadow politics, but in an entirely different way that potentially the elite viewed the world in contrast to how, you know, us normal people are sort of instructed to view it. And uh, that was really from there where I had started to discover politics because it was, you know, evident to me after looking at a few books related to MK Ultra. I mean, there were only a handful of ones that were even really worth reading. I mean, obviously John Marx's account, some of the stuff that's at Acid Dreams by Martin e. Lee and um Charles Shalin, I think his name was. Um, and then later obviously Hank Alvarilla's work and maybe a few other ones. But uh that was also when I kind of started to, you know, get the impression of standards of uh, research and that kind of thing. And then ironically, I, uh, had also recalled, um, <laughs> uh, what would it be described as? I suppose the footnote episode of Bill Cooper's, uh, mystery Babylon one, where he goes into all of the books that he used uh, as source material for the show. And, you know, his whole emphasis at that point on, you know, needing source material and it'd be incredible and so on and so forth, which was really just otherworldly in hindsight because i mean after i had acquired a lot of the books that he cited i realized that they were garbage pretty early on so <laughs> sometimes a bill cooper actually you know did this deliberately to try to teach his more astute uh, listeners a lesson about some of these uh, things like that but yeah um Anyway, that is like what it really sort of emphasized the whole point of being able to document things because, you know, as the old goes, incredible claims or was it extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. Yeah. I mean, when you start looking at, I mean, this, some of these much more insane things like, uh, the UFO question or the obsession with psychedelic drugs that the military and the CIA had for decades then. You know, you got to be really careful about that. You've got to be very choicy about what sources you're going to choose to believe and base your research upon. And um, ironically, I think that's made a lot of the more maybe conventional uh, political research easier. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you're trying to like suss out, you know, claims related to contacting non-human intelligences, like, you know, through you know, chemically enhancing your brain or something like that, whether or not the CIA or the military did it. I mean, something like the Kennedy assassination, the basics of it is almost trite by comparison. So. That's a really long-winded Yeah, no, no, I, I appreciate that. I always find it very interesting to see because everybody's experience is a little bit different insofar as how they come to, you know, get into this world of parapolitics and kind of just 
are seen of people who are talking about these subjects. But there's always, you know, some similarities to it. I mean, I myself had a dad who kind of got me into, you know, looking at conspiracy stuff. He was kind of into the John Birch Society, uh, Alex Jones, Tear, William Cooper. I mean, I remember, you know, reading Behold a Pal Horse and listening to some of the old Mystery Babylon episodes and what have you. And then eventually it brought me into, as I started looking into that and all different kinds of things. Because, um, I mean, eventually I, I used to like, I'm embarrassed about it now, but when my dad started getting into 9-11 truth and stuff like that, I used to like be like the Snopes police on my dad or something like that and we're trying to debunk him. And it was actually kind of through uh, trying to argue with my dad and so, on some of these issues that I began to see that there was something to some of the stuff that he was saying, but obviously, you know, I kind of got started in the uh, libertarian-ish circles of, you know, conspiracy literature and stuff, but eventually made my way to, you know, some of the people like Peter Dale Scott or someone like that who's, you know, meticulously cites everything, and has, you know, amples of evidence for everything. So, no, I see... um some differences, but also some big parallels into how we um, came into looking into these sort of things. So, um, no, I appreciate that. And I guess the next question that I'll ask you is, um, now that we know what got you into researching parapolitics in general, um, if you can remember, because it's been a while since you wrote your initial series on Wackle or the World Anti-Communistly, um, what first got you interested into researching the World Anti-Communist League and what kind of led you to learn that um, there's some differences between WACL and some of these uh, more conventionally talked about think tanks and secret societies, you know, whether that be the Trilateral Commission or the, the Council on Foreign Relations or, or any of those? Well, it went back um, to the series that I did in, I think it was 2011, maybe 2012, but I think it was 2011, on uh, the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, which I'm sure now is really, really quite dated. I knew Wendy uh, Painting, I think her name is, has uh, recently done a book on that. I haven't read it yet, but I know quite a few told me that it's excellent on the uh, the whole situation with that. But anyway, I, I did this series on Oklahoma City bombing. I think it was like a five or six part series. And to this day, I really consider it as kind of a pivotal moment um, in my career because it was the first time that I had really chronicled one of these uh, new kind of like well, I mean, it was the first time I had really looked at the right side of the power structure, if you will. I mean, again, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, coming up through this in like libertarian circles, you hear kinds of stuff about the Trilateral Commission and the Bilderberg Group and the Council of Relations and all the other usual suspects that Cooper and now Alex Jones and all the rest of the crowd ran about at news on. Uh, and obviously the potential links to terror and all this other stuff. And then I had started looking at the Oklahoma City thing. Uh, and that was the first time I started to really look at the militia movement and some of the other groups that were connected to it. And if I'm not mistaken, 
this was the first time I had really encountered the Sovereign Order of St. John as well, which has subsequently become uh, one of the major points of emphasis in my research, uh, because it is so crucial to all of this. Uh, but anyway, in looking through the Oklahoma City thing, this was, I think, one of the first time I had started to encounter the whole right side of the pyramid, if you will, in the groups like the American Security Council and, of course, the World Anti-Communist League. And, you know, again, this was a huge moment for me. I mean, it opened up a, you know, a side of the world that I really had not uh, thought it existed at that point in time. And it uh, prevented me, presented me with the opportunity to both take a deep dive into this and, you know, what I thought was also at the time, and which I think is uh, proven to be subsequently as well, to pursue an avenue of research that was criminally overlooked and especially relevant. Uh, and really, in a lot of ways, it's become even more so than when I had started doing a lot of this research. But yeah, it uh, it definitely went back to the Oklahoma City bombing and the uh, you know, some of the events around it too, obviously, like Waco and, um, oh, Ruby Ridge with Randy Weaver. I'm gonna, you know, kind of when we get into embarrassing sources for this, I think it was maybe even Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare with Michael Hoffman, which was the first time I had actually kind of thought that there was something conspiratorial about all these events. And then, yeah, the more I looked into it, it became evident to me that there was just a a vast network active in a lot of these, uh, these different events. Um, and yeah, it was eye-opening, put it mildly. And it gave me a, uh, like I said, an opportunity to do something that I thought was uh, quite novel at the time and uh, in some ways still is. Absolutely, absolutely. No, I, I remember when I began to kind of start to realize that... Uh, you know, it was not just, you know, uh, the kind of like Alex Jones version of like some international communist conspiracy or something like that. And in fact, a lot of that is kind of to steer people in the wrong direction, if anything, and starting to find some of the links to international fascism and learning about Operation Paperclip and Gladio and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, kind of coming to see that. Uh, it was up, it's kind of like the hideousness of it at the personal level too, I should sort of point out, because again, I, you know, I grew up in that whole era when, um, you know, the Oklahoma city bombing and previously Ruby Ridge and, uh, Wago had all been big events. Again, I can remember my dad listening to the, you know, the radio talk shows about that. And then just the frenzy that was going on that conspiratorial right at the time, and, um, we were in Florida at this point, but I mean, I know that from what I had heard, you know, some of my relatives in West Virginia, I mean, it become quite radicalized over some of these events. So it was kind of the other thing about when I had started to revisit Oklahoma City around 2011 is it brought back a lot of these memories of this kind of stuff. It's like, wow, you know, I can actually see how these events really did have a personal effect on certain people in my life, okay, you know, really a very deep level, which also I think uh, was a bit staggering because you kind of see the power of these things now, you know, from the perspective of psychological warfare as well, so it's another interesting aspect of this. Yeah, no, I, absolutely, I, I could not agree more, and I uh, once again kind of have a bit of a parallel experience with you 
on that front. Um, you know, just seeing how all these different events kind of galvanize people in a certain direction and how there's most certainly bad actors who are more than eager to manipulate that. And we, that's, you know, still going on today with, uh, you know, people, I mean, you can even see it happening with something like the COVID live leak stuff right now, where it's, you know, trying to be used as some sort of um, thing to pin on China without looking at the, you know, kind of American interest behind it or, or something. I mean, the uh, conspiratorial right is definitely being misled in many directions. So, um, but anyhow, um, now that we kind of know what got you interested into researching the World Anti-Communist League and kind of just the international fascist portion of the uh, of parapolitics, um, what do you think exactly sets the World Anti-Communist League apart from other, you know, household groups like uh, the, you know, CFR or Trilateral Commission, which you kind of touched on that a little bit already. And, um, you know, maybe just talk a little bit about the formation of the World Anti-Communist League as well. Uh, well, so lot there to cover. Let's see. Okay. So as far as it goes, like with the CFR, the Trilateral Commission or the Bilderberg Group, I mean, those are basically think tanks. I mean, they probably do have some intelligence functions here and there but i mean you know they have the say uh, the cia or mi6 or whatever to do a lot of that for them so these are sort of the bodies more so where policy would be kind of hashed out in the case of something like the cfr especially i don't even know that it's it has a lot of influence in that regard anymore i mean the cfr is a rather large organization. I mean, all kinds of people are linked into it and so forth. I tend to think that it's used more to, um, uh, you know, build consensus among uh, middle management uh, from mandates that have been sent down from all high, essentially getting everybody on the same page, more or less. Uh, probably, I mean, more exclusive groups like the Atlantic Council or maybe even, um, you know, obviously Davos or some of those networks are the ones, at least on the neoliberal side, that uh, actually determine the policy. And even then, it's probably more exclusive groups that we're not even aware of. But yeah, I mean, they're, you know, they're think tanks, they're research groups, they help set policy, they do play a role in terms of psychological warfare, no doubt. Uh, but that is, you know, even in and of itself, I mean, somewhat limited, though certainly uh, we know that our adversaries, quote-unquote, read all of these publications. So, I mean, if you want to send a message, especially something that's serious, I mean, you do do it through one of these think tanks. But when you get into something like Wackle or it's American branch in the American Security Council or the European one and the SoCal or you know, these would have been like the big actors during the Cold War era that we're referencing here. Uh, they were more action-oriented, if you will. In the case of Wackle, specifically, I mean, in a lot, it was more or less used, I think, as an umbrella body to manage a lot of these, you know, quote-unquote, captive nations uh, groups. Uh, and this goes back, at least in the U.S., to what was known as Operation Bloodstone, if I remember correctly. 
And it also involved the creation of you know, special forces and all this other good stuff. But basically, uh, around 47, 48, you know, we were going to use all of these Eastern European groups to try and uh, destabilize the Soviet Union. And then we would send in uh, Green Berets and they would link up with these groups. You know, they would essentially run a terror campaign, uh, most likely in the aftermath of a new exchange with the Soviet Union. So forth. Um, anyway, this stuff didn't work out according to plan. I mean, most of the CIA's efforts were disastrous infiltrating these groups, these immigrant groups, because they had been penetrated by the KGB. So they became fairly disillusioned around 52, 53. But the military, or at least a portion of it, still thought that there was a lot of potential and it seems like a couple of different bodies were used to basically stash a lot of these uh, these assets on. So that seems to have been at least the early premise of the why the anti-communist league was ultimately founded. And it had really been, I think, kind of an ongoing process as well in terms of using some kind of body like this as a a front group for these sort of private paramilitary and um, intelligence services. I mean, the first, I suppose, attempt to really do um, an anti-communist international uh, was actually during the 1920s, and it involved uh, the International Anti-Communist League, I think, or something to that effect, which, ironically, uh, one of the founders of it was Sidney Riley, so-called Ace of Spies, who... Uh, depending upon your point of view, was later lured in and assassinated by the Soviets as part of Operation Trust, or who was an agent of the Soviets and uh, lured in other bites to Operation Trust and also helped dismantle the white movement. But yeah, um, the first real attempts to sort of do this anti-communist network went back to the aftermath of the First World War. You had all of these... Uh, you know, white veterans who had been driven out of Russia proper, they still had access to these intelligence networks and these paramilitary groups. And there were various attempts to try to coordinate them into a unified effort to destroy Russia. Or, I mean, excuse me, well, some of them wanted to destroy Russia. Other ones simply wanted to take it back. That's actually very relevant to later topics that we may get into. But, um, yeah... It was also an ongoing uh, issue, too, uh, with the World Anti-Communist League proper. Essentially, you know, what is to be done with the Russian Empire slash Union? You don't see a lot of white Russians in WACO, and that's because it was dominated by the nation's crowd, the Eastern Europeans, and Central Asia as well. They did not want Russia restored to its former imperial borders. Uh, after the uh, you know the uh, Bolsheviks had been defeated or whatever, they wanted it broken down, uh, and uh, essentially all of these different ethnic groups, the Ukrainians, uh, different Turkish peoples, given their nations and so forth of the former Russian Empire. So that had been kind of an ongoing issue that played out in these various attempts, and it was also why, even though the first formal efforts to establish the World Anti-Communist League. It started in 1958. It didn't actually go through it until 66, 
because again, there was just this, this ongoing debate, you know, the enlightenment, what Russia, and then also, I mean, in uh, terms of some of the other groups that were trying to get in from Eastern Europe, a lot of them were just uh, fascists and so forth. So you had essentially this organization that from the get-go, from its predecessors, was deeply rooted in a lot of far right nationalism on the one hand, predated fascism in circumstances, and also had always been closely aligned with a lot of uh, paramilitaries. And this was the modus operandi that we tried to establish in the aftermath of the Second World War. A lot of this stuff had been you know, shuttered, uh, or I should say destroyed by the Soviets during the Second World War, gone deep underground during the Second in the aftermath of the Second World War, but I mean, by the late 50s, it was deemed uh, by policymakers in the states, that, especially military, that needed these things once again. Uh, so, yeah, still, though, had the ongoing efforts for almost a decade or so to try and get it off the ground. It's quite likely that the Kennedy White House also played a a huge role in preventing the establishment of Apple prior to 66. It's one of the things that we get into in, I think it was like the fifth or the sixth installment. So, it again. The Kennedy assassination. Uh, he gets into the role that the Order of St. John potentially played in uh, the assassination which I had also really been looking at from a lot of my research. And there was a very close tie between this group and especially Charles Willoughby, the big figure in the SOSJ tied into the Kennedy assassination, who also had very close ties to the OB, the big component of the alternative blocking nations and Wackles. So, or what later became Wackles. So, yeah, there is, um, a possibility that certain obstacles had to be removed for Wackle to uh, finally come into being. But it did happen eventually, by the grace of God or not. And that was 1966. I think the same year that um, Anton LeBay founded the Church of Satan, no less. Good company. Um, but yes, 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 it uh, came into being in 66 after a lot of these intrigues that played out. Yes, all very interesting stuff. I mean, so with the founding of the World Anti-Communist League, yeah, you kind of have the anti-Bolshevik block of nations, which largely consists of um, people who were literal Nazis or who were... Um, of great help to the Nazis. I mean, you have the organization of Ukrainian nationalists in there with people like Yaroslav Spetsko, who uh, was, you know, uh, definitely helpful to the Nazis and their cause. And then you have the Asian People's Anti-Communist League, which have people which I first learned about in, uh, by reading Gold Warriors and kind of looking into that. People like Yoshio Kodama and... Uh, also, uh, Ryochi Sasakawa, if I pronounced his name correctly. And um, something that I really want to touch on in this episode is, especially with the people involved on the in the Asian People's Anti-Communist League, who eventually come in to whack all these people like Kodama 
And also people like Chiang Kai-shek, um, the Kuomintang leader, um, were very involved in the drug trade. And this is something that we will see um, be a recurring theme throughout Wackville's whole existence, pretty much. So I would just be curious to get your take as far as um, Wackle is concerned with some of these early players like Kodama and people like um, Chiang Kai-shek and how this relates to uh, what will be a long history of being involved with the drug trafficking. So we can kind of start to steer into that direction because I think that's uh, something really great that you've done both with your podcast series on this subject as well as your articles is dive into that aspect which i think is missing from a lot of people's accounts of michael okay so there's actually a lot to this as well that involves the eastern europeans that i've only recently discovered but we'll get into that later okay so um as far as the Asian people's anti-communist league goes, it was established, I wouldn't say, after the Second World War. And uh, the driving force behind it for a lot of years uh, was the China lobby, quote-unquote, which, again, was centered around uh, Taiwan. So, for those of you unaware, there was the Chinese Civil War after the Second World War. I think it ran 47 to 49 or something to that effect. And um, the Chinese nationalists, Chukashek, defeated. Uh, they were centered around the KMT, the Kuomintang Party. They ended up relocating to the island of Formosia. Uh, they committed a uh, brutal mass killing. I think something like 20,000 ethnic Formosians were murdered, uh, which is almost not talked about anymore. And they basically established a military dictatorship on Formosa to Taiwan. Uh, again, uh, the KMT dominated the country for years, uh, even though ethnic Chinese are only about 10% of the population or something to that effect. And I think they only just recently got the first prime minister, like in the last decade or so, who had some kind of Formosian ancestry. And even she was, like, I think a former Formosian. It might be different now, but um, effectively, Taiwan is an apartheid country. Uh, this is something that a lot of people don't realize, but I always think that it's important to point that out. And yes, the KMT and Chiang Kai-shek were deeply involved in tra trafficking and had been, I think, since at least the 1920s, if not sooner. This went back to the uh, the whole, uh, what is it, the opium exchange in Shanghai or something like that, that the British, the Shanghai Opium Commission so absurd thing that the British had set up in theory to try and, um, you know, stop the flow of opium. Basically, instead, it was used to manage it. Uh, I think the big guys involved was TV Sun or something like that, who was uh, one of the early backers of Chiang Kai-shek. But anyway, he also had ties to one of the uh, more notorious triads, if I remember correctly, the Green Gang. And uh, yeah, so this was a process where he used opium to fund his uh, actions over the course of his career even before uh, they were driven out of the Chinese mainland and in the aftermath uh, throughout the first half of the Cold War I mean, the KMT would continue to maintain a presence in 
the Asian mainland primarily in regions like Burma. And, uh, I think if I remember correctly, Thailand as well, where, you know, the opium trade flowed through. I mean, essentially they had these full blown paramilitary camps set up in these regions, you know, you know, basically in the middle of the jungle, I mean, you would have a military base that the KMT was managing that uh, essentially existed for the sole purpose of uh, smuggling opium. <laughs> so uh, anyway, the this uh, gave them quite a considerable money, which they in turn used for a lot of influence operations in the United States proper. And uh, the agency was lost. It's one of the major aspects of that and it had been much more active in the early years uh, obviously than my goal was as it didn't exist until I think close to a decade after the Asian People's Anti-Palamous League had been set up so um, yeah it's uh, it's also interesting to point out that a lot of the support from Czech as Czech came from uh, Douglas MacArthur and these sort of band of military officers around it were such major figures in the American right way. Uh, they were, I think in a lot of ways, kind of counterbalanced the OSS old bullies, if you will, but you see them showing up in a big way in the American Security Council. And as I noted earlier, also the Order of St. John, uh, which Willoughby was a member of. Um, and he also turns up in the whole thing with the Golden Lily, quite a, uh, a prominent role as well which I guess is a good segue into the Japanese side of this. Um, and also, interesting discussion about the Golden Lily, too, because I'd been revisiting Edward Lansdale for totally different reasons, and uh, I had just been to Hoover Institute. was back in September with Keith. Keith was uh, getting documents, actually, uh, related to the NTS, which was one of the couple of other groups related to Wackle for his uh, Wackle book, and I was there to get some stuff on Lansdale and a few other characters for a book I'm working on. And uh, while it wasn't necessarily related, I had thought I would look through there for any kind of references to Lily or anything, nothing other than a um, letter from Seacreaves, actually, asking Edward Lansdale about that. And the more I've looked at this, I especially knowing how deeply involved Lansdale was in psychological operations and the fact that he was willing to use some very extraordinary <laughs> uh, cover stories for his psychological operations. Of course, you know, there was the whole joke, even during the church committee, illumination uh, by or elimination by illumination to describe Lansdale's psychological operations. This is a guy who, for those of you unaware, when he was commanding the counterinsurgency in the Philippines uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War, he would have uh, communist guerrillas uh, have puncture wounds put into their necks and trained to blood and then hung from trees to convince the communists that they were being killed by vampires. Uh, he was quite obsessed with a lot of this, and I actually think that some of the Latin superiors Kennedy assassination were actually driven by Lansdale himself. You have to understand a lot of this came from Lewis Fletcher Crowley, 
uh, who actually served under Lansdale on a proto version of the Joint Special Operations Command. And from what I can tell, they were they were still good buddies, even after Prouty started accusing Lansdale of orchestrating Kennedy's assassination. So, and on that note, that brings up an interesting thing about the Golden Lily. It's it's been used as a means to describe how we were able to fund so many of these off-book activities, the aftermath of the Second World War, because supposedly it was this sort of Japanese counterpart of the Black Eagle Trust. It was a bunch of gold that the Japanese had smuggled out of the Asian mainland and had melted into gold bars, and then supposedly they had put them in these vast underground in the Philippines and Japan, but especially in the Philippines, and we have been using these to rig gold market and fund black operations and all this other stuff now for, what, 80 years or something like that. And the more I got started to look at this and some of the later schemes involving the gold certificates, uh, which very much have been used for Ponzi schemes, for those of you unaware, the gold certificates were supposedly held. This this Japanese loot was traded by the international banking class. There were these special auctions and so forth where these certificates were passed around. And if you could get one of these certificates, you could lay claim to billions of dollars of gold. But many of the people who have ended up with these certificates have ended up on quite considerable prison sentences. Um, it's, it's quite a fascinating story in and of itself, but I don't want us to get too sidetracked here. But anyway, as this relates to drug trafficking, I increasingly have begun to believe that a lot of the Golden Lily was a cover story to disguise the fact that much of these things that we're talking about here, these off-book operations and so forth, were actually being funded by drug money. Because, you know, when you say that we're using gold that, you know, we recovered from Imperial Japan, which they, they stole from the Asian mainland, well, you know, it's okay. I mean, maybe it's not the most honorable thing to do, but most of the Asian mainland were communists at the time. I mean, were we just going to turn around to give all this gold back to what were theoretically dictatorships? I mean, was that really responsible? So... You know, you could maybe rationalize some kind of moral eye ground using confiscated Japanese war gold, like you could Nazi war gold. But using heroin money, especially when it, you know, is being used to arm like a death squad in Central America, well, there's no moral high ground there. There's not. And that, you know, might give a, uh, a window into why a guy like Lansdale really want to push this whole notion of Japanese war gold funding so much of this stuff instead of what his parties uh, whack what we're doing. Well, I, I don't know if the Lansdale actually had that close ties to it. He was involved with uh, aspects of the American Security Council throughout the United States, but found less so with Wackle directly in that regard. But anyway, you had... Certainly in the case of Kahnema, I mean, he was a big figure in the Yakuza, uh, the Japanese organized crime syndicate, of course. Uh, you know, he basically was a glorified smuggler for the Japanese army during the Second World War. If you ever saw um, the TV version of The Man in the High Castle, they actually 
do a pretty good job in that of depicting how the QC sort of worked in conjunction with the Japanese military uh, during the Second World War. Obviously, this series went on to the 60s, but I mean, it's uh, based on this sort of relationship they had, really, that a lot of militaries have with organized crime, for that matter. But, uh, you know, we don't talk about that. But anyway, uh, you know, Kadama eventually became one of the major financial backers of the Liberal Democratic Party. Again, he was also heavily backed by Arthur Willoughby. I mean, these were two of the major driving figures, I think, ultimately behind the creation of the Asian People's Anti-Communist League, and certainly uh, by maintaining these particular power structures in Japan and China, respectively. Uh, but you also have to note the importance of the unification church and a lot of this as well uh, because the unification church did establish very close ties to Kanama and um, a lot of these you know kind of Yakuza figures in Japan and that was really in the mean arguably to this day was really the major basis of its power was in Japan and frankly I mean that's still an issue to this day I mean Abe the prime minister who was recently assassinated appears to have had some kind of involvement with the unification church and um, killer and turned its ears to involve with uh, Sean Moon's breakaway sect, the uh, the church of the AK-47, as I like to think of it, uh, though it's, I think, a straight broad iron or whatever. He's insane. But, <laughs> um, you know, this is the sort of legacy that plays in a lot of so you have this basic cult here, which, you know, again, there's a lot of shady stuff as to how the Unification Church was set up. Uh, this was one of the big things that Ed Kaufman, alias Don Diligent, who was in the original Wackle series, had done a tremendous amount of research into. It's entirely possible the founder, Sun Moon, have been an agent of fascist Japan during the Second World War. Uh, there's also some interesting implications to some of the research that the Air Force was doing on prisoners of war that Moon might have been involved in using. But there's a lot of murkiness surrounding the origins of the Unification Church, but it gets set up and uh, by the late 50s, I think, at least certainly by the early 60s, it appears to have made tremendous inroads with a lot of these war criminals slash drove lords in Japan. And uh, that would really open up the floodgates for a lot of additional funding into the, you know, what became the broader Waggle network going forward with us. And I think that was you know, probably one of the arguably more pivotal moments because the Unification Church uh, was so integral to Waggle, I mean, really throughout much of its heyday. And then, you know, later the the Christian right as well in the United States. Again, uh, Sun Mayan Moon was one of the major backers of uh, Jerry Falwell's moral majority. And again, given the fact that probably his funding was coming from the raises the unsavory prospect that a good sure chunk of the American movement was being sponsored by drug money during the 1980s. Fast aspect to all this that nobody ever wrote needs to talk about. Uh, so I think that was, I guess, a good crash course of this one, some of the drug-related stuff at the Asian People's Anti-Communist League. Now, that certainly was a 
good crash course in some of the drug stuff that was going on in the Asian People's Communist League. And yeah, I mean, you have these people like Kadama, who, you know, helped set up the Liberal Democratic Party in Japan. And then you have people like Chiang Kai-shek, who are, you know, involved in the opium trade and, you know, then they kind of become these unlikely bedfellows and coming together to help form the World Anti-Communist League. He gave us a little bit of a rundown of the China lobby, which kind of functioned in a way similar to how many would think of the Israel lobby today. So all very yeah. interesting stuff. The Israeli lobby. And there was actually... It's kind of interesting too. There was a fair amount of overlap with the early or the early Israeli lobby and the China lobby as well. Um, gosh, I can't remember his name now, but one of Roy Cohn's uh, like political mentors was actually sort of a it's prominent right wing uh, Jewish conservative who was also kind of an early fixture in the China lobby from back in the day. But um, yeah, that uh, is a very very apt comparison. Yeah, no, certainly very interesting. And another thing that you brought up that I was very um, happy to hear you bring up and I thought was just totally fascinating is the Golden Lily is kind of a cover operation for some of this drug trafficking that, trafficking that was going on in the Far East and how that might be where the CIA and some of these other people were truly making their money and people like Lansdale, you know, would find it to be more honorable to you know be using this recovered gold as opposed to admitting that all this funding that they had for you know black budget operations and stuff like that is coming from the drug trade so that's really fascinating as someone who's dived relatively deep into the uh, golden lily stuff and has very closely read the sea grades work and stuff that would make sense and would kind of uh yeah that that would be kind of the perfect cover with what was going on and we do know a lot of these people who were involved with golden lily like kadama and stuff um were heavily you know up to their eyeballs when it comes to the drug trade so all very interesting but the world anti-communist league wasn't just involved in its early days in the drug trade and it wasn't just restricted to heroin and opium per se but could you talk a little bit, and there's going to be a lot of overlap in this subject between the Latin American death squads that the World Anti-Communist League was involved with, but also how there's all these kinds of weird connections that you find to people who were involved with the cartel or some of these anti-Castro Cubans who became giant fixtures in the cocaine trade. Okay, so yeah, um, I mean, the most direct link was to the anti-Castro Cubans. Of course, they were the first uh, group to really traffic cocaine in the United States. Um, you know, sort of going back to the mid-60s or something, that there wasn't really much of a market for it back then. And it was comparatively minor, but uh, they did have a presence in Wackle uh, through Alpha 66, which was one of the, you know, more intelligence connected of the any networks i mean there were a couple of them that was uh one of certainly more prestigious ones 
uh, one of the founders for that had been arrested, I think at one point, even for narco trafficking as well, around 74 or something. And if I remember correctly, too, um, Alpha 66 was one of the anti-Castro Cuban groups that was involved in the, um, you know, the sort of arms trafficking network that the Minutemen were running, along with the Minutemen elements of the Italian mob and uh, some of these other groups out of New Orleans during the time of the Kennedy assassination or leading up to the Kennedy assassination. This was, of course, when they thought that they were going to get another crack at um, overthrowing Castro, I mean, proper after the Bay of Pigs. Uh, you know, this is the Operation Guy Bannister, uh, David Ferry, all this other kind of rogues gallery that uh, were implicated in the Kennedy assassination. New Orleans were also tied to uh, and again, it was this sort of smuggling network that potentially involved elements of 66 and basically Cubans, elements from the Minutemen, the uh, first really big Cold War era right-wing militia. Uh, it's known that this was certainly involved with arms trafficking, but it most likely it was some drugs going on with this as well. And then later, um, you have, what was his name, Alberto Cillian Falcon, I think, uh, who was one of the most notorious early traffickers uh, in Mexico, though in point of fact, he was actually um, <clears throat> Cuban-American and not Mexican, but he had uh, ended up working out of Mexico uh, initially in the uh, heroin trade and then later, I think, a little bit in cocaine. Uh, but really, it was going into the 1980s that you started to see uh, a lot more of the far right and using these cocaine traffickers and some of their operations and obviously i mean colombia was the first really big one in more regard uh for there you had a whole situation with the rise of the medellin cartel this is the one that part was let it air was his name um pablo escobar if i remember correctly were like the big uh figures behind so, and this was also the first major, you know, America, or the first major um, Hispanic cartel to really emerge in the cocaine. Well, I mean, really, it was the first major cartel in general. Uh, it's also I mean, the one that's been depicted in Johnny Depp movie Below, and I'm sure a couple of other ones that I'm forgetting now off the top of my head. Uh, but anyway, you know, quite legendary and all this other good stuff. It had ended up being linked to a lot of... Uh, strange characters over the course of its run of course at one point it was supplying uh, uh cocaine to the company which was a uh a network of ex uh military and law enforcement officers based out of kentucky that were running a large smuggling operation and being cartel trafficking arms there was a lot of indications that they were being used to arm up the Contras and so forth. I don't know if they were necessarily part of the Wackle Network. You did have people like Donald Trump who were uh, kind of the uh, same circles that some of these people ran in. Uh, but in terms of being linked to Wackle, uh, there's definitely some possibilities with the background of a guy like Carlos Dater. I mean, he was actually a, uh, his father was German. I believe it uh, migrated to Colombia around the time of the end of the Second World War. So there was certainly the possibility that his uh, dad had been Nazi, and uh, certainly Carlos Letter himself would embrace Nazism quite fanatically. Uh, 
for his base in Norman's Clay. He had started wearing, I believe, SS officers' uniforms, go around to give Nazi salutes to people who had visited him and so forth. Elsewhere, the major financial patrons behind the Middle East cartel, this was the Hoover family, I mean, they had established one of these effectively anti-communist death squads and proper. Uh, but again, the actual links between them and WACO, I have not been able to really determine. And point of fact, even though they did support anti-communism within Colombia, they had also supported uh, uh, other groups. I mean, effectively, the Middle East cartel would sell to anybody in Castro, but a lot of other communist groups as well. Uh, that became an issue ever, and that I think set up what I uh, thought of all as the great cocaine coup that sort of unfolded around the mid to late 80s, where essentially the new car down was up, brought down a couple of pegs or two, and uh, was replaced with one hand in Colombia with Cali ports, though. But more to the point, this is also when a lot of the Mexican cartels really started to become the dominant players, uh, really in the uh, side of the world, more or less. So uh, that I think was definitely where you see the hand of waggle most evidently, uh, that kind of brings up, you know, another topic that you wanted to get into, which I think would be used to explain through this, which would be lost tackles, which was a very peculiar organization. Um, their origins, and there's a lot of debate about that. I mean, typically it's agreed that they came out of the Costeros movement, um, which came in the aftermath of the civil war that Mexico had during the early 20th century. The, the politics to all this are really complicated, so this is going to be very simplified. Uh, but basically, Mexico had been run by very strong Catholic influences since pretty much its founding. Uh, you had the revolution and this brought a lot. It brought the, uh, the PRI, I believe, pre the, uh, what's basically been the dominant political party in Mexico ever since, you know, I mean, for almost a century into power. It was based more out of the northern part of, uh, the country, which is where you had more of the industrial base and so forth. And as such, it tended to be much more uh, you know, geared towards modernizing Mexico to the expense of um, you know the indigenous peoples, the peasants, and also the Catholic Church. And this had led again to a uh, long-standing civil war uh, that ultimately the pre and their supporters have prevailed in. But uh, there have been various attempts to uh, turn things back, and one of those was the Cristeros movements, or Cristeros, I think. Announced, but um, it's it was usually depicted as being a really reactionary Catholic movement. But the more I've looked at it, the more it seems like it was uh, actually more of a genuine populist movement, if you will. Uh, though there were certainly a couple of groups active that were trying to co-opt it, uh, and one of the big figures involved in this was a French Jesuit priest named uh, Bernardo uh, Bourbriant, I believe. But anyway, there were two groups uh, that were sort of running concurrently as the Cristeros movement that were sort of vying for control of them. And the Cristeros movement, the Cristeros movement, was it was mostly a royal that you know comprised of farmers and so forth. 
uh, whereas these groups were very urban. Uh, they were made up more so of intellectuals. One of them was the National League of Defense Religion, and the other was the Catholic Action in Youth. So it seems like Los Tecos really grew out of the latter one. Uh, the former one uh, was actually what seems to have inspired the Legionaries of Christ, which were another kind of similar movement. They were like uh, Latin America's answer to Opus Dei or something like that. The long time head of Marcelo uh, was later implicated in abusing, sexually abusing multiple children, including his own. So he was another wonderful guy. Uh, the Sinarchist movement in Mexico, which was, it, it was different than the European one, but there might have been some influence. I don't want to get too bogged down in this at this point, but it's a complicated topic. But there, there was definitely links to the Sinarchy movement as well and some of these early groups here. Um, and Los Tecos might have had some interaction with them, but it seems like more often than not, they were kind of vying to the hearts and minds of the same segment of the Mexican population. So anyway, uh, the Tecos appear to have really got going at some point during the 1930s. And uh, the big dude behind them was uh, Carlo Mistake, uh, I believe. I've heard of Stop. Uh, but anyway, he is an interesting guy. Uh, he appears to have spent a fair amount of time in Nazi Germany during the war. Uh, he potentially was involved in setting up paramilitary groups that could be used in the United States. Again, to possibly destabilize the country. Or should, I should say, excuse me, setting up state-by-state groups that could be used brought into the United States to possibly destabilize the country. So again, there's sort of this whole uh, obsession with these sort of guerrilla slash paramilitary groups uh, from the get-go that were baked into Los Tecos. And uh, Gallardo seems to have had a pretty close relationship to some of the anti-Bolshevik uh, crowd, if not then, certainly the aftermath of the war. There were very early ties to the Ukrainians. Uh, even more so with the Iron Guard, uh, which was uh, uh, Romania. That was another one of the uh, groups comprised in the anti-Bolshevik bloc nations. Uh, through the fascist group, a lot of people relocating to uh, Mexico in the aftermath of the war. So, yeah, there was a lot of that. But anyway, the Tecos really emerged as a major power uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War. Um, they had set up the Autonomous University in um, uh, Guadalajara, which was their major base of operations. Uh, in fact, it still is, as I'm understanding it to this day. And um, interestingly enough, they got a lot of funding from the U.S. starting around the early 60s. A lot of it came uh, from a guy called Oscar Wigan, I think, who was a U.S. citizen born in Mexico, Wigan, maybe. Uh, but he had apparently arranged for a lot of not-government organizations to lavish this university funding. And um, a good chunk of it actually came from like the Rockefeller, the Ford, and the Carnegie Foundations. And this is coming at a time... I mean, these guys were really, really freaking right-wing. I mean, the American section of Wackle, which was dominated by people like Stephen Fasani, who had spoken favorably of Nazism during 
Second World War were horrified by the extent of Los Tecos' anti-Semitism, for instance. It was just really all chain. I mean, the Americans were just kind of like, no, we should not have anything to do with this. It'd be, we're okay with former Nazis in some circumstances, but these guys are freaking off the rocker. But somehow they were able to get funding from the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Carnegie Foundation, even as they issued numerous publications denouncing the Rockefellers and the Fords as agents of international jewelry and so forth. But it worked somehow. And they also got funding from the U.S. agency development, sold their good stuff. Yeah. So anyway, by the mid-60s, early 70s, they had really started to become a uh, pretty substantial powerhouse. And uh, that kind of gets into the time frame here where they really start to make some inroad with Brookcraft too. And a lot of this seems to have gone through um, the DFS, the Federal Security Director, right? Uh, which was modeled on America's FBI. It had close ties to the FBI, but it also had some functions the CIA as well. And it had um, ties to the CIA pretty uh, substantially. Fact, uh, and that's also been described as having quote structural linkage with instituted between the royal political levels and the drug traffickers between the DFS and moving up that leader next spot. So anyway, Los Tecos also had very strong inroads into the DFS. In fact, I can't prove this, but my suspicion is that. Los Tecos was probably what was controlling the DFS at the senior level. I mean, kind of like how propaganda Dewey was being used uh, to control a lot of the security services in Italy at the same time. Era. So anyway, you have Los Tecos and the close relations with the DFS. The DFS also had ties to the KMT, drug drafting parties in Taiwan. So they're good stuff. Uh, and as I had noted before, its major power base was uh, Guadalajara. So in the 1980s, you have this thing that comes to be known as the Guadalajara cartel. And this is more or less the father of virtually every one of Mexico's modern drug cartels, with the exception of the Gulf cartel, but like the Tiana. Tijuana cartel, the Juarez cartel, the Sonora cartels, and especially the Sinaloa cartel, all trace their origins back to the Guadalajara cartel. And the Sinaloa cartel is basically, you know, the modern manifestation of this thing. And this is Sinaloa. Sinaloa is considered the main cartel in the Western Hemisphere. Also, <laughs> the Guadalajara cartel was a big, big deal. It's based in the same city as. The Tecos all. The guy who founded the Guadalajara cartel is a dude known as Miguel Angel Felix uh, Gallardo. You know, I, I have never been able to determine this or not, but, you know, it's not beyond possibility he was related to the Tecos founder in some capacity. Uh, and from what I have been told by people who actually attended this university, encountered the Tecos, uh, 
you know, they, they owned a lot of land. They own a lot of land in this whole downtown area. It's been built up. You see all of this money coming in. Nobody really knows where it's coming from, but I mean, you've had to do, you know, it was, it's not something that people around the university, from what I understand, talk about, but it was sort of acknowledged, I guess, in some levels that this is where a lot of the funding was coming from. And then on top of that, you had the whole murder of a guy called Manuel Puente, the journalist of Mexico. And the two stories that are around about this is that he was murdered in April of 1984 because he was supposed to do an expose on either the DFS being in lead with drug cartels or the DFS being techos. <laughs> Probably possible that it was both that he was about to expose. And again, you know, we see the same kind of modus operandi for why that they want all of this. Again, Tecos also appear to have been controlling private militaries in Mexico with the white brigades, which have been used to basically beat back any kind of opposition to the pre of the country, even though in theory the Tecos were opposed to the pre. It's like the same thing with Propaganda Dewey and all these other fascist groups in Italy. In theory, they were opposed to the Christian Democratic Party, which was the center right party that was here to sell outs. But they basically engaged in acts of violence that sustained its rule. It's the same thing with the Tagros in Mexico and the pre. So, uh, getting into the whole thing with the cocaine, you got the Medellin cartel. It's, uh, you know, it's had some questionable loyalties. Maybe sold some blow to Castro, to some of these other figures. Uh, it suddenly gets kind of taken down a peg or two. The Cali cartel is on the driver's seat for a while. Really big winners in all of this ultimately are the two Mexican cartels, the Gulf cartel and the Guadalajara cartel, especially the Guadalajara one, which again, you know, may well have had very close ties to Los Tecos. Can't be discounted, but based on especially what we can kind of see for instance, with the Bulgarian connection in Europe during the 1980s, how it involved propaganda Dewey and the Italian mob and how a lot of this was linked in with the Serkao, which was sort of the European version of Wackel, a lot of overlap with Wackel, kind of discern how some of these things played out. Very interesting stuff. Very interesting. So now that we have covered both some of the connections that Wackel has to the opium trade as well as the cocaine trade, and I think that you've done a very good job at um, elaborating and illustrating all that for the listeners. Now let's maybe shift gears just a little bit because we've talked about that We've kind of touched on some of the death squads in Latin America that had these connections, the China lobby, all this different stuff. But I want to talk about this, but have you talk about this for just a second, because um, it's always important to see that this stuff that we are discussing isn't just, you know, kind of abstract history from the past that doesn't really bear any relevance on us today. 
but I just wanted to get your perspective about, um, I mean, we, um, you've already mentioned, you know, the organization of Ukrainian nationalists, which was one of this, with these groups that, you know, was, um, a part of the anti-Bolshevik block of nations and, you know, members from that would become involved with Wackle, but how does a group like that later become, you know, part of Wackle and, what does that have to, you know, inform us about, you know, what's going on right now with the Russia-Ukraine conflict? All right, so the organization of Ukrainian nationalists. So this has a pretty illustrious history. Um, I believe they've been around actually since the late 1920s, if I remember correctly. And they were actually already running influence operations in the United States by the early 19th. 30s, and I think they had already developed uh, ties to the FBI by then also. And this is, you know, kind of another interesting thing when we talk about ethnic lobbies, I mean, we hear a lot about the China lobby, the Israeli lobby, but the Ukrainians have actually had a very active lobby in this country, and uh, it's been going on now for close to a century. So it's uh, one of the reasons why uh, we are currently involved in the conflict in Ukraine. But anyway, uh, so getting into some of the factions here, the most militant of them is the Banderite faction. So typically, when most people are talking about the OUD, what they really mean is the, or the OUN, that is what they're really talking about, is the OUD, which stands for the Banderite faction. So anyway, um, by the 1930s, uh, they had to, kind of developed a bit of an ambiguous relationship with the Nazi party here and there, depending upon uh, which way the wind blowed uh, in regards to the Russian Empire. And again, this is something I had alluded to before, but um, Ukrainians, uh, more so than practically any other ethnic group in the former Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, just wanted to destroy it. Uh, to break it down uh, in the early to the status that Russia had during the Middle Ages. It attached like all the territory problems. And obviously, this became a major issue with a lot of the other anti-communist movements. But um, gradually, there was a coalition that was brought together, and this is what kind of serves the basis for the Bolshevik bloc nations. And there were, at times, you know, again, with the Nazis, different views on this. During the early years, um, there had been much alignment with more of the Catholic nations crowd than the Nazi party. So they had made some tentative promises to some of the groups like Ukrainians about potentially having freedom, you know, or at least some degree of anonymity for Ukraine, if in theory they backed the Nazi regime. But by the time uh, the war started going, they were definitely at this point supporting uh, Maslov and really quite Russian factions more so, and at least telling them that they would belong to uh, have some symbols territory back. So anyway, this uh, but again, things always would come So anyway, the OUNB, they also had very close ties to uh, MI6 as well, and again, this actually predated the Second World War. Afterwards, both Six and the CIA uh, have fixated on the OUNB as being integral to their plans, as I kind of explored there with these uh, you know, Operation Bloodstone, 
special forces, the kind of thinking was that we would have a nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union, and then the captive nation groups would be used to go in with U.S. special forces to effectively serve as a ragtag army that would rally the civilians in these countries and destroy the lost remnants of the Red Army, and, you know, we all look like they were after us, that effect. And to prepare for this inevitability, we have begun to send a lot of these captive nation types into the Soviet Union during the late uh, 40s and early 50s to try and, um, you know, start the process of this operation. And it was a disaster because they were thoroughly penetrated, especially the Ukrainian faction again, by And this created a very interesting dynamic because you had this group, the OUNB, that governed a lot of experience lopping in Mormon states, and now they had generated a lot of inroads with the intelligence services of both the United States and the Soviet Union. And that led to seeing interesting things playing out over the second half or even in theory after the OUFB on because we funding paramilitary activities and they were just like lobbying all this older stuff. Who were they? So we had a really prominent double agents off of the late 50s or 1960s. It was very controversial with CIA, but the FBI loved this guy. Same FBI, but that long-time relationship with the Ukrainians. His codename was Top Hat. And he became one of the most effective sources we had in Soviet intelligence during the Cold because this guy eventually became the general in the GRU. His name, which is the Russian military, and this is important, we'll keep that in mind. His name was Dmitry Polyakov, and he was born in Ukraine in 1920. So he would have come of age right around the late 1930s, 1940s, just when the OUNV's influence had height in Ukraine. So it's an interesting thing that you hear almost nothing about this guy's background. You see stuff about him. Some strange reason I believe are curious about what he was doing during this youth thing. But we did wrestle the stuff that he was doing afterwards. So he had a protege in the GRU, a guy who was called Yuri Gussin. This guy had a lot of expertise in psychological warfare, but he also uh, was involved with special operations as well, because again, it's not really known that psychological operations and uh, special operators are very close to tied because it's all part of convert operations. That's the hands that I don't think it ends. But anyway, good old uh, yes, uh, Yuri Gessev eventually became the head of the entire GRU in the early 90s when he suddenly died in a car accident. <laughs> but uh, it's a bit understandable as to how he had managed to become one of the top guys of the GRU because he had a very sensitive job 
during the 1980s. He was in Afghanistan. Supposedly, he was in a GR unit designated as N. That N stood for narcotics. This was apparently the guy who was involved in managing the heroin trafficking for Russians, or excuse me, the Soviets, during the Afghan war. Now, Gusev, in turn, had some interesting protégés under him. Quite a few of them uh, were partly uh, of Turkish, Central Asian Turkish descent. One of them was a guy called Anton uh, Surikov, who would later become a major uh, source for various Western journalists. He became one of the owners of uh, the online version of Pradlia. He uh, was considered to be a major uh, political figure of the Soviet Union. He also harbored a lot of pan-Turkish sentiments and was apparently also a Sufi, which is interesting. Uh, and I haven't really pointed this out very much, but another guy who uh, was involved in the whole captive nations and the Bolshevik bloc of nations crowd, and uh, who was also close to the OUNB, I can't find the book right now, but the quote one second. This is about here. Yes, yes, yes. There was a guy called uh, Rizzi Nazar, who was another guy who was involved in the uh, anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations and with the OUOD specifically. Now, he... Uh, and also part of uh, the dominant Sufi order throughout Central Asia, the Nasbaqwan Sufi order. And uh, he was also from Uzbekistan, and he was also a big figure of the pan-Turkish movement, and he ended up uh, working with the CIA and was active in Turkey during the 60s, during the heyday of a lot of the coups. The uh, guy also definitely had a lot of links to the grave globes and what happened here, so keep that in mind. Uh, but anyway... Uh, all of the these guys uh, who were involved with Gossip and the uh, who you know, were sort of part of the Central Asian ethnicities during the 1980s, and there were a lot of them deployed to Afghanistan. And the theory that these using that if they had Muslims there as troops or their functions, it would go over easier if the indigenous peoples they would feel like they were being occupied. At least that was the theory. But anyway, Sir called and a lot of these other guys were also part of the Nasbakri order that um, you know, guys like Nazar were part of, guys like Adhir Shah were part of, and yes, Adhir Shah was also active in Turkey in the 1960s and then later in Afghanistan, helping some of these Shadeen uh, fighters on the other side. As you see, Sufism was huge in Central Asia. It was big among a lot of these southern uh, of the southern states in the Soviet Union and also among the Uyghur people in China. <laughs> so, you could imagine how, in theory, these groups would be used to very to, uh, to stabilize these regimes. And, um, well, it's interesting as to why they would be given very senior posts in the GRU 
Once again, guys like Sir Paul Patrick's breastplate and into Washington, that's a quick wash the careers. But um, for our purposes here, what we're really interested about it was working with Russell with this uh, detachment man that he argued were wearing tonight. He's a guy who's generally known as Vladimir Flilon. He was also a Ukrainian. What's more, his family were a O U and B family. And this guy was almost surely brought into the GRU and protected through the network of that was Dmitry Polyakov guy. Pop. Okay. So Dylan is one of the major guys running this Narcos. He was from a family connected to the OUB and also potentially tied into the UAP, which was the, you know, army essentially that the OUB raised during the Second World War to fight with the Nazis. And this group was quite brutal. And this guy had always harbored extreme anti-Russian sentiments, filling this as well. So rather remarkable that this guy would have not been brought into the GRU in the first place, but would have been put in a sensitive post like managing the freaking heroin trafficking for right? <laughs> but again, Ukrainian defect, the Ukrainian double agent, Top Hat, who is at this point in time, I believe, a general in the GRU who's running interference where So, well, so that makes you kind of wonder, and then that gains up another thing, which is the whole Bulgarian connection. So what was that? Well, it involved heroin being smuggled out of the so out of Afghanistan into Turkey through Bulgaria, which was a communist country then, and then finally ending up in Italy where it was brought into the loving hands of the Sicilian mafia. So let's think about this for a second. Okay, you've got these guys here on the one hand, Felon, who's part of this are this OUNB network running the fucking Afghanistan heroin stuff here for the Soviet military in theory, along with these guys who are part of the pan-Turkish movements. And then the heroin is going into Turkey. Then it goes through Bulgaria, which at this point in time had established its own links to uh, British intelligence via good old Captain Bob, that's Robert Maxwell, for those of you outside the UK. Yes, Ghislaine Maxwell's good old father, the one who died mysteriously <laughs> off of his spot in 19... He was there helping managing uh, the uh, the money laundering for the Bulgarian Secret Service. And then it later ends up going to Propaganda Dewey's boys and the Sicilian Mafia. And Propaganda Dewey, as I'm sure you can guess, had a lot of ties to Wackle, too, as some old this is a really interesting set of circumstances here, right? You know, you got these these different captive nations groups, but specifically these Ukrainian nationalists and these pan-Turkish uh, nationalists who have a strong presence in both the U.S. and the Soviet intelligence services who are deeply involved in drug trafficking and also really doing a lot to destabilize the Soviet security services, both through drug addiction, which was becoming epidemic in the military at the time, and 
also through the criminalization and corruption of the KGB and the GRU involvement in the Trump trade, right? So here's another thing for you. Eventually, the Soviet Union collapses around 1991, and these guys from on and Surikov and a few of the other ones uh, from Gus's uh, circle, they end up in Africa working for a private military company, not executive outcomes, but actually executive outcomes rival strategic consultants in Angola, along with people like Victor Bout, notorious Ukrainian arms trafficker that was just recently released. And uh, they get an ideal. They should found their own private military company, and they do. It's called Farwis Limited. It's a lot of backing from some interesting sources. It gets a lot of support from Halliburton slash KBR, from an American TNC called Diligent. It was headed by William Webster, director of the FBI and the CIA. It's a lot of support from the Saudi royal family, especially uh, Al Turkoy. And uh, first, Gishagi, uh, Adina Gishagi, I think, and then later Jamal Gishagi, you know, the one who was dismembered in the Turkish embassy a couple of years ago, that guy. Same one who was a director of Far West Limited for a time in the Knots. Yeah. Wait, right. Okay, so Far West Limited, interesting group. It was implicated in both 9 11 and the Moscow apartment complex. And it seems to have become really a fun group for man from a lot of these captive nations crowds like Wackle used to do. And wouldn't you know it, um, when stuff started to get really hairy in Ukraine, starting with the Orange Revolution in 2000, on the one hand, you had a lot of Americans who started, I mean, a lot of Ukrainian Americans started going against the regime of Yushchenko, lieutenant power in the aftermath of the Orange Revolution, who were from OUNB families. And you had this guy, Vladimir Filin, who was not only brought into the Ukrainian services, but was given a top post in their military in politics. And uh, started getting up into some, into some interesting operations. And this is a guy from the OUNB family as well. In fact, really, you could look at Yushchenko's regime as essentially turning control a good chunk of Ukraine, maybe not total control, but at least hardly opening up a shearing with a good chunk of OUNB members who had uh, grown up overseas in some cases. It certainly it, uh, really changed the dynamics of our relationship with Russia, and I would argue set the stage for uh, the current conflict unfolding. Very, very interesting to say the least. And I'm glad that you went into that because it's always good to bring things to where it um, adds some context to, to the current day to where it's not, you know, just some obscure history or something. But that, I mean, people who are associated with the World Anti-Communist League and these different groups like the OUBN and, and what have the um, OUNB, I'm sorry, and what have you, um, this still has a ripple effect. You know, there's concentric waves, you know, being made up to this day where all of this stuff matters. And I mean, um, I'm very glad that you came on to talk about all this. 
Okay, okay. So, like, just one other interesting thing about the OUB to kind of point out to both all, you know, its whole involvement with captive nations. Of course, they've been trying to get that enshrined as a full-blown national holiday, captive nations week. Uh, it's, I think now they usually hold it in the third week every July. Uh, and then specifically, they have the whole big captive nations day and so forth. And I attended the... Uh, the last two big uh, kind of get-togethers they had that were sponsored by the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. And uh, this was the group that effectively the the Captive Nations Network had finally managed to get set up around the uh, early 1990s. So Captive Nations, again, I mean, it had always been really dominated heavily by the Ukrainians, but there actually is also a strong presence from the Pan-Turkish Network that I was alluding to before there. Um, it only really kind of dawned on me recently too, but I mean, there was so much stuff like the, uh, the Uyghur situation in China that I've encountered there, uh, which I thought was interesting in hindsight, learning some ties that it had was just and Turkish net was on. But anyway, so the Fitness Memorial Foundation is set up and it was fascinating because I mean, you have at the time in the 90s, I mean, the, a lot of the usual suspects that you kind of expect here for like a second generation or a successor organization to wackle involved in it. Um, one was the, Edward I believe, the uh, one of the co-founders of the Heritage Foundation. I actually got to shake his hand at the, uh, uh, the freaking restaurants of the Memorial Foundation here in 2021, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, you know, the Heritage Foundation, I'm sure he were involved in setting a lot of this other kind of stuff. Um, but it also got support from the big new Brzezinski, and he was, you know, never closely involved with it. But he lent his name to the group from very early on. And I think, and in hindsight, this is probably quite significant because Brzezinski is, you know, I mean, he was really the neoliberal establishment's answer to. Kissinger, uh, certainly a big figure of the Trilateral Commission, and more to the point, um, in the book that he published in 1996, The Ranch Chessboard, I mean, he really has been the blueprint of both the neoliberals and the neocons have been using from up to the 21st century. So Brzezinski was huge in foreign policy circles, but I mean, especially amongst the neoliberals, and that means really the Democrats in the United States, especially. So this was a guy who had linked himself to this group that was effectively a successor to that in a lot of ways. And I think that that laid the foundation along with there some more reputable neocons like uh, Paula Dobryansky, who was the daughter of Lev Dobryansky, another guy, the Ukrainian nationalist and Ukrainian-American nationalist, and to the UMB. She was, of course, a part of the Project for American Central. She hosted the Reagan White House and all this other good stuff. So she kind of gave a respectable face to this captive nation's crowd that was dominating in the Victims of Populism Memorial Foundation. And actually, this sort of laid, I think, the path for a group like the Atlantic Council to come in. And the Atlantic Council, I mean, to my mind, is really a long with you know, the New America Foundation, World Economic Forum, and Boston obscure groups are really at the forefront. Now, the neoliberal order, much more so than like the Tri Labs, the CFR, 
Bilderberg. In fact, Peter Thiel is, I believe, now chairman of Bilderberg. We Bilderberg helped to seat in the post of the So, because the uh, upside down world living on, whatever. So, you've, you've got the Atlantic Council involved in all this, and this is bringing in a lot of major figures in the Democratic staff. And I think that this ultimately is, you know, what sort of laid the, uh, the path for a guy like Joe Biden to become so closely entwined with this Ukrainian nationalist network. Because, I mean, you know, this is something you get into the farm, but they were supporting Biden. I'm going all the way back to 08, 09, around the time of the Russian invasion of Georgia, right? So I think the Atlantic Council played a big role through this, especially through the, uh, was it the Ukrainian American congressional. They have so many of these different fund groups that they you know, become set up as successors. But I mean, having seen how this sort of plays out directly, you know, these meetings of the Victims Memorial, Communist Memorial Foundation, the Captain Majors, I mean, you see all these figures in the Heritage Foundation, Council, all these different Ukrainian in some cases, Central Asian groups and so forth, all coming together here especially this most recent one. I mean, it was just shocking the militancy towards Russia. I mean, again, that's not, they don't want to just stop with defeating Russia and Ukraine or driving out of Crimea or something. I mean, they want to, again, they want to break Russia down into borders that it had during the Middle Ages so that it can serve its, what they believe is its actual purpose, which is a counterweight to China for the West. So, I mean, they're openly discussing, like, pros and cons of assassinating Putin. Somebody actually got up and asked the panel that, like, how do you feel about assassinating Putin? <laughs> Nobody was really, just kind of like, well, I mean, it's it's tempting, you know, but I mean, really, it would just bring somebody more militant to power. I mean, it's it wouldn't really solve anything. We have to destroy Russia. Destroying Putin wouldn't accomplish that. Like, this is the kind of insanity that is being bannered about in these meetings, right? And, you know, again, this isn't just like Republican Christian evangelicals and the kind of typical stereotype with this. I mean, there was an actual figure from Biden's administration present, at least early on for these discussions. You know, I mean, there are people like, again, client council, Democratic Party, where they're holding hands with these people from the Heritage Foundation. I mean, not literally. I'm here. It's you know, this is, to my mind, been possibly the biggest coup with the OUOB is the fact that, I mean, they really provided an avenue to bring right-wing extremism into the mainstream Democratic Party of the United States, quite frankly. <laughs> Again, this is deeply rooted in the legacy of Blackhole. Very relevant to what is playing out now in the war of Lawshaw. Or excuse me, Ukraine within Squashman. So, yeah, no that that is very interesting, and you have seen that shift with the uh, more uh, with the liberals towards becoming more hawkish than they certainly used to be. I mean, you know, back during the Bush administration, I mean, they were you know largely against the Iraq War, at least on the ground. You know, I'm not talking about the um, you know establishment puppets or whatever on stage. Or disarmament, man. There was actually a time when the left actually opposed using nuclear weapons. Remember those uh, good old days? 
(laughs) yeah no and 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 now i mean i mean you know when you know probably 2014 ish or something when people started to kind of get riled up about syria and you know a little bit after that you know you started to see people on the left you know start to get galvanized but no i haven't really seen anything like it with uh liberals like the way it has been with this current russian ukrainian crisis and i mean they're nearly as bloodthirsty as you know conservative people were after 9-11 it's it's ridiculous so um i guess that the uh... i mean i mean it's like if anything you know and i have to say i've actually come to a greater appreciation of obama after you know kind of reinvestigating this kind of successor bridge to whack on the roles that they played in this book of state abortion in the 21st century because i mean you know, this process started with Obama's administration. I mean, Biden was a guy who was targeted very early on by uh, the Ukrainians and these other groups. But there were other members of the of course, Victoria Newland and other people brought up as well. Yeah, I, I think in a lot of ways, I mean, he was the only thing that really restrained uh, a major escalation with Russia throughout his administration, to be perfectly honest. I mean, the more I look at that, I mean, it seemed like he was increasingly isolated and trying to, you know, take a more moderate approach towards all the Russian Federation. And I mean, certainly, I think his hand was finally forced with Euro Maiden all to the point where he had become involved in Syria and already occupying. But I certainly think that it was with great reluctance. So um, I'd always been quite critical of, I mean, of his foreign policy, which I found to be one of the most disappointing things about his administration. But I mean, in hindsight, now I, looking back on it, and especially stint for which Biden, I think, it probably could compromise with some of these groups all, all the way back to like 2005 or so. He probably uh, bought us a couple of years. Let's just say that. Yeah. Now, uh, certainly a lot to you know point, a lot of flaws to point at with him. But if that is the case, that is uh, certainly a a good thing and uh no absolutely crazy just that change from you know liberals kind of being the the ones to not want to intervene in the matter of you know others at least not quite as much as you know the the neocons but i mean kind of what whatever side of the aisle you look at i mean they're effectively neocons today um, so very interesting stuff. Well, is there anything else that you want to say about the World Anti-Communist League before we conclude our recording on the issue? Uh, no, I mean, I think that's a pretty good crash course uh, on Wackle for one episode here. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the show and discussing with us the World Anti-Communist League. And just for our viewers, I want everybody to check out your work because you've got a lot of really, really great stuff out there. So where can everybody find you? Well, the main thing I do now is the podcast, which was the Farm Podcast. Uh, that normally comes up with Google search, uh, the Farm Podcast Mach 2. That's M-A-C-H-L-I-I. There's a sort of confusion with its whole host, so you have to do this how get the search but anyway, uh, I got uh, weekly uh, shows off of that, uh, usually every Monday, and then also 
this on Patreon, but you get two additional cool shows per month. Lowest tier, upper tier, you get those plus um, our access to the farm's monthly Zoom party, the archive shows, and lots of other things we usually hold with us. Then meaning it less as the bulletin compared to plastic air. So there's stuff, which two tiers, also to five, is ten. They all like to think without bang for your buck and also help support a lot of the one point they switch them once year. Hopefully, um, you know, it stands out as something that's a little different than what a lot of the food that then I'm up to once and about <clears throat> contribution to. And then, uh, as Luke also said, I am the yeah, co author of Strange Tales, the pair of both most war houses, mercenaries, and other secret histories. is not as a special relationship, Trump, I've seen and sequels to the one Bomer establishment. And I am the long term curator of the Bicep Wall, which you can find at bicep.com. I thank you guys again so much for listening to hearing this. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for explaining all of this to everyone. And seriously, everybody, go check out his stuff. Make sure to support him so he can continue to do great research about all these various parapolitical subjects and high strangeness and the like.